we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. After a long break, the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove, we've returned. I am, of course, Trevor, the Iron Fist, with me. Scott, the Velvet Glove, you're back for episode 79 on the 25th of January 2017. Scott, how are you? I'm really well, thanks, Trevor. How's yourself? I'm going well. We've had a good break, so I needed yeah, a break. We have had a, we have had quite a few weeks off, haven't we? Mm, but I was, I was feeling yeah. the need for a break, and I'm feeling refreshed now and raring to go. That's good. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Pleased to hear that. Mm. Yeah. I listened to a few different podcasts, and lots of them sort of had a similar break. So somebody like um, Philip Adams has only just come back, and so mm. so dear listener, we're not that slack. I mean, there are other podcasters around who, like us, took a big break. But anyway, we're back now. For a well, proper, that's it. Yeah, yes. exactly. Any New Year's resolutions you can share with the dear listener, Scott? Uh no, none that but none that'll be kept. But anyway, so. <laughs> breaking them already—that's the spirit. <laughs> yes, I am breaking them already. Yes, mm, mm. I've got a few. Uh, one mm. of them to do with the podcast is detail. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, we we we've been bashing religion for a while now and poking fun at them, and we'll continue to do that. But I'd like to try and explore some more positive alternatives. So. Okay. I did a fair bit of reading over the holidays, which was good. And mm. um, so I'm just trying to get a grip on the history of ethics and ethical thought and and constructing a meaning of life that can replace religion. Because at the end of the day, if we just convince people they should abandon religion, a lot of them are going to want some sort of other alternative framework to work with. So... I'm, I'm, that's a that's and a plan. That, that's it, isn't it? Mm. That is it, isn't it? Because you you um, when you do leave the church and that sort of stuff behind you, it yeah, I mean, it does feel good and that sort of stuff. But there is something missing, mm. and um, I don't know what it is. Whether or not it's um, whether it's the simple matter of no longer having a community that you can go to, I don't know. But um, Something is missing, yeah. Yes, so, so I think that's a task for us to work on this year, some positive, and as part of that we'll be looking historically at ethics to some extent because, you know, what do they say? If you want to know where you're going, you've got to know where you've been sort of thing. So um, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I, you know, we have spoken about Kenan Malik in the past. He's written various articles. Yes, we have, yes, yeah. From his yeah. Pandemonium website and... He wrote an excellent book, um, The Quest for a Moral Compass, which was uh, a real history of ethics going back to ancient Greece and working his way through uh, Socrates, Plato, and then all the way through the different religions. And I got through it all, and it was really good. And um, Yeah. So, yes, we'll look at some bits of that along the way. And... Uh, and our other favourite, one of our other favourites has been Lionel Shriver. Remember the lady who spoke at the yes. Brisbane Writers Conference? And, yeah. she, and uh, she, she wrote about um, cultural appropriation and poo-pooed the whole notion. And mm. um, I said at the time I really liked her writing, just in the article talking about that. So I, I stumbled across one of her books called The Mandibles. Okay, yeah. 
uh, yeah. fictional novel, um, set in the future where there's a, a financial crisis and this wealthy family um, lose all their money like most of America does. Uh, America defaults on its loan. The American dollar is, is like a junk peso. And uh, this wealthy family ends up uh, uh, all congregating in the flat of, of the poorest member who happens to have a job uh, with the government, so still gets paid some money. And it was a really interesting book. Quite liked it. So if you've liked what... There was The Mandibles, was it? Mm, the Mandibles. So if you've liked what Lionel Shriver said about... Um, cultural appropriation, then she's actually a really good fiction writer as well. So, mm. but anyway, enough of that sort of stuff. Let's start with a few articles and, well, a few events. And Scott, it's not every day that a man like Donald Trump gets elected to the most powerful position <laughs> on the planet. Yeah, and you know, I was talking with this, my better half and I were discussing this the other night. And he's gone and decreed that the inauguration day for, from now on till the end of time will be the National Patriotic Day of Deliverance or something oh, or other. Has he renamed it's, it, has he? He, he? Well, he's renamed it, apparently, yes. Right. Uh, it's absolutely insane. I hadn't heard that. that but yeah. I, the, the big... Uh, I can, the big hullabaloo about his inauguration was the attendance figures. And yes, yeah. uh, pictures show you know that area at, in Washington under Obama's inauguration was chock a block with people, and the same picture of uh, Donald Trump shows obviously um, a significantly um, smaller crowd. And yeah. beyond that, what they've also done, Scott, is they've looked at um, subway usage figures. So you mm. know and that also clearly shows that it was well down on the number of people. And there's an interview, um, an interview with, uh, uh, must be one of his spokespersons or something, Kellyanne Conway. Did you hear about this? Okay, yeah, I heard about this, yeah. Where the reporter was questioning her and saying, you know, how can the president say that there were more people at his inauguration when, when all of the facts show that, in fact, there were less? And... She came out with a statement, which was that the president has provided alternative facts. Exactly. Yeah, it, it's absolutely bloody maddening when you when you hear something like that, mm. and he comes up with a, 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 a statement saying it's alternative facts. Mm. You think to yourself, what what facts are you alternating on? You know, it, it's crazy. It, it seems to me you've either got facts or you've got lies. Yeah, well, and, that's what the reporter said. You've got yeah. facts or lies, so clearly these are lies. And but this exactly, is the sort yeah. of this is the sort of Orwellian speak that we're getting from the new mm-hmm. um, Trump administration. And just before we started the podcast, Scott, I was on Facebook, and I saw this thing from the Guardian saying that sales of George Orwell's 1984 have surged. After Kellyanne mm-hmm. Conway's alternative facts statement, and uh, well, it really doesn't surprise me. Yes. Yeah. So 19, 1984 was his um, oh, dystopian future, where sort of a tyrannical sort of government. And uh, one of the quotes from George Orwell was, "The party told you to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears. It was their final, most essential command." That was George Orwell. <laughs> 
this is sounding unerringly like 1984. <laughs> it is. Goodness yes, me. That, that is a concern, yeah. Mm. yeah. Scott. I've got that. It's, yep. Sorry. Oh, you go ahead. Trump names Inauguration Day as National Day of Patriotic Devotion. Oh, well, yeah. Well, that'll last till the end of his presidency. Then. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, there's a couple of people saying that he's only got a couple of months to go. So, you know. <laughs> well, if, if only, Scott. Yeah. If it's if it is of great concern to you the this new uh, Trump presidency, then you might avail yourself of the services of Georgetown University Student Group, uh, who are helping students to cope with the Donald Trump inauguration. Um, <laughs> it was an event... Actually, it's too late. It was an event held on January 23rd uh, for students returning from protesting Donald Trump's inauguration. And they were inviting them to, uh, to a night of relaxation, recovery and rest after a long week. There will be Lego, stuffed animals and colouring books. Come to embrace the inner child and hang out with people. <laughs> So that's uh, Georgetown University's recipe uh, for those uh, uh, people who can't handle the Trump inauguration. Lego, stuffed animals and colouring books. I had read there was a similar thing that had been put on by one of the universities, and it might have been one of the big ones, mm. like a Stanford or something like that, where they had, um, they had they'd brought dogs in for yes. people to cuddle. Puppies, yes. yes. Puppies, yes. Yes, fluffy and I puppies. To myself, yep. Exactly. I thought to myself, Jesus, you, you, you people have got to get a grip. Mm. He's only going to be there for four years. Um, well. You know, there's no way the Americans are going to give them another term after this one. Mm. You know, it's, well. it's, well, he's mm. not. He's not going to get another term. <laughs> well, he was never going to get him. He was never going to get, he was never yeah, going to get elected that's in the true. first place. So yeah, that's true. Yes, it is true. Never yes. say never when it comes to the Don. Scott, did you listen to the inauguration speech at all? I did listen to it on YouTube. Um, oh, you're good. Yeah. I, I, well, I was bored. But anyway, so okay. I listened to it on YouTube. Oh, and it was. I'll provide a few was, highlights um, for, for our Yeah, do friends. that. But just, the, just my feel of it was that the man has not stopped campaigning. He right. was still in campaign mode. And it was... Um, Quite, uh, it was quite a, uh, a when you when you look at the way former presidents have handled their inauguration speeches, mm. and you compare it to Trump's, Trump's was a crass uh, divide and rule sort of thing. Yeah, mm. I, I think he's just in narcissism mode, which is a permanent mode for him, so he can't help himself. But um, yeah, I think that I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, some highlights from his speeches that will particularly interest our secular audience, Scott. Um, this is Donald Trump inauguration. When you open your heart to patriotism, there is no room for prejudice. The Bible tells us how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Later on, he okay. said. <laughs> later on, he said, whether a child is born in the urban sprawl of Detroit or the windswept plains of Nebraska. They look up at the same night sky, they will, they will their heart with their same dreams, and they are infused with the breath of life by the same almighty creator. And then a bit later... Okay, yeah. Um, 
There should be no fear. We are protected and we will always be protected. We will be protected by the great men and women of our military and law enforcement. And most important, we will be protected by God. God. <laughs> Pretty... Uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I don't know whether or not he believes in that nonsense or whether or not he's just... Um whether or not he's just rolling it out for the uh, audience that, that helped get him over the line. Oh, I but, think he um, just rolled it out. He doesn't believe in anything yeah. except screwing people over um, as quickly as yeah, he can. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay, other big issue. So that was the big issue in the United States, uh, election of Donald Which Trump. Which is a big issue, a thing around the world. Mm. Anyway. Yeah. Our biggest issue in recent times, Scott, has been a billboard featuring some Muslim girls in hijabs. Presumably advertising yeah. Australia Day, and I, I I don't know exactly how I feel about it. I mean, I, I take the point that the party president put out there when he said that um, they're little children and that sort of stuff that they should have the freedom to choose themselves and that sort of thing, rather than um, having their decisions made for them. Mm. Um, so I do take that point, and I think it's a good point. Um, but I'm just not a hundred percent. Yeah, I, I don't know exactly how I feel about it. I mean, I can understand that it is a religious thing that's being pushed up there. Mm-hmm. It's not got nothing to do with race. It has got everything to do with religion. And I would be as offended if you had a gaudy crucifix or something like that up there being shot around and that type of thing. It was. Um, it was still quite offensive, I think, um, to parade the, the girls the way they were paraded. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, what do you want to say? Well, a uh, couple of things. One is that the poster was up and had to be taken down because of sort of threats by some groups against the advertising company of some sort. So, mm. So clearly, you know... We don't encourage violence against people for these sorts of things. So, um, yeah. So you know, I, I can understand people saying we shouldn't, uh, you know, kowtow to threats and that sort of thing. So, uh, fair enough. But if you're going to uh, argue for the reinstatement of the of the other. Uh, poster then you really need to address some real problems with it because you can't just say well we want it up there and it's all good because it's not all good i mean no, it, the- it's not all good and it's not all good for the reasons that i've outlined it's mm. yeah it's yeah it, it's not all good and you know this is the thing that you and i've said before is that you know you've got this um group of western liberals who go out there and say that you should be able to wear the hijab and that sort of stuff, you should wear the hijab. Mm. But they would never tolerate the garbage that goes on in Iran and Saudi Arabia, you mm. know? Yeah. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. You know, well, for starters, it's it's promoting, seemingly promoting the idea that, uh, you know, the typical Muslim wears a hijab and that's not necessarily the case. So... No, that's very true, yeah. It's encouraging... Uh, the hijab as as a normal thing for Muslims to wear, where it may not necessarily be so. But mm. this is an abhorrent garment uh, on an adult because it's just in, it's a symbol of female oppression, 
and it leads to this whole cultural slut shaming that goes on where the mm-hmm. women are, are forced by community notions to appear virtuous otherwise they bring shame on their family and it's a terrible situation that muslim women are put in and we shouldn't be just letting that go by without comment so if you want the poster back up you should be making that comment as a you know i believe in free speech but i don't like this particular aspect and the the other thing about it is We've got children here, and they're young children. Like, I would imagine those kids are sort of seven, eight. Seven or eight, Maybe You know, they're very young. And Mm. the idea that children can knowingly choose a particular religion to follow is completely ludicrous, that they could have weighed Mm. up, you know, this whole indoctrination of children before they're of an age to make up their own mind is just child abuse. And... Yeah, it is. It is. The parents of those kids right on the head. are guilty of child abuse for foisting their religion on those young girls before they're in any position to make up their own mind. And so. it comes back to something you said a few weeks ago, where you had um, there was a story we were reading about. Um, it was about the hijab and that sort of stuff, and it was um, that some mothers were encouraging their young daughters to start wearing it, so that by the time they're of age, yes. They're not going to be. They're not going to hate it as much. Exactly. You know. Yeah. I mean, the whole point of this veil is uh, that women are temptresses and men are weak and cannot mm-hmm. view the sexual female body without losing control. And we're talking mm-hmm. about girls who are eight or nine, nowhere near puberty. Mm. And mm. we are sexualizing them now to say men cannot look at these girls because they're going to be overcome with all sorts of hormonal rages or whatever. It's an abhorrent yeah. notion. It's an insult to the girls. It's an insult to you and me. It's just insulting to everybody. And actually, Richard Dawkins always had the, he had a good argument about this because um, he was talking about some picture in a, in a newspaper which showed some kids and referred to a Muslim Christian and a Jewish child all playing together and he said what a ridiculous notion you know you, you might as well call them Marxist or Tories like their capacity to understand the tenets of different faiths is it's just not there so yeah um, mm. so uh, so yes those in favor of restoring that poster need to at the same time talk about the problems with that poster and those items those girls in hijabs should not have been there because yeah uh, i I agree with you i mean if if that had if that had adult women there in hijabs Mm. that might have been something a little different Mm. but even that it's still got a religious overtone to it which i don't think you should be you shouldn't be you shouldn't be muddying the waters on our national day mm. with religion. Mm. Do you subscribe to the Rationalist Society newsletter, Scott? I do, and mm. I hadn't read the last one. I've got to admit that because uh, mm. you had said uh, you'd made a comment on that about that in a um, yeah. in a in an email, and I thought to myself, "Geez, I must go and read that," but I didn't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So it's a very good newsletter, dear listener. Um, like. Log on to the Rationalist Society and subscribe to it. it. Comes out every day and always got lots of stuff. A lot of which appears on this podcast. Um, Meredith <laughs> Meredith Duig is the president, and she 
It's also from the Sex Party, and she wrote, she writes it, I believe. I'm pretty sure she would have written this particular one, but there were two items, one after the other, um, in the newsletter, and the first one was um, blah blah blah. The appalling vitriol that erupted in Melbourne over Australia Day ads that featured two young girls in hijabs. There were death threats, and the advertising company caved in and removed the ads. Check out the crowdfunding campaign to reinstate them here. So, you know, a positive uh, statement saying that it should be uh, reinstated. Then followed by, uh, yesterday I was talking to a young female medico who asked if I was going to the Women's March on Saturday and I was ashamed to say I hadn't paid much attention to it. Well, I have now and I'm going. Please consider. Here's the Facebook details. So the, the writer could see no irony, Scott, mm. in one paragraph wanting the reinstatement of a picture of these girls in hijabs and the yeah. anti-feminist notions that we've just outlined. And yet in the same breath, straight afterwards, saying, oh, you must have yes. you know, a good idea to attend this uh, feminist... The, the Women's March. Yeah. Women's March. This is just a classic example of the left completely <clears throat> abandoning... Islamic girls mm. weighing up culture as being far more valuable than the women's rights of these girls. Exactly. It's absolutely appalling that she did that. And, and you know, she, and you're right. She, she didn't, it didn't, uh, um, there was no irony in it or anything like that. She, no. she just didn't, didn't, it didn't occur to her, no. you know? The other thing that's been yeah. happening, there's been a few uh, women's marches around Australia and the world, Scott, and um, mm. basically protesting against Donald Trump, I think. And yeah, they have been. Yeah. In America, a number of them featured women who were donning the, you know, just ordinary American Christian women donning yeah. the hijab. The, the in, hijab, yeah. In so-called sympathy with their Muslim sisters. But but as a not not in sympathy, but in in support of them and saying you know I ride with you sort of tone to it. Oh, and it's hypocritical virtue signalling, yeah. Scott. Yeah, it is. It is. You, you've hit the nail right on the head. It is hypocritical virtue signalling. It's. There's nothing more to say about it. It's utterly disgusting. Actually, a, 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 a women's march where the where the marchers are donning voluntarily hijabs that they wouldn't normally wear anyway. Like, what? Yeah, exactly. It, it's what, what's crazier, Donald Trump getting elected or, or, this, or, the, or the left completely abandoning women? Well, I just don't... Yeah, it's, it doesn't make sense to me why they would do that. But anyway, they did. Hmm. Mm. Scott, an article <coughs> from Quillette. In praise of ignorance. ignorance. Mm. I like this one. Um, Yes. So this is from basically saying it's all right to say I don't know. Yes, and um, importantly, a good thing to say. I have some facts to back up my opinion. So, uh, by Simon Cullen, and he gives the example of uh, or the case of a discussion that he had with a very intelligent woman, a PhD fresh from an Ivy League university. This woman explained that the United States criminal justice system is an oppressive apparatus of state racism. She painted a picture of prisons overfilled with African-American men locked away for non-violent drug offences. 
she was convinced that the US criminal justice system requires dramatic reform or complete dismantling. And this guy, the author of the article, uh, posed a question and asked her approximately what fraction of US prisoners are incarcerated for possession as opposed to pushing or smuggling the drugs? And the answer was she didn't know. And as it happens, it's under 4%. Hmm. And he's making the point that that sort of basic statistic is easily available to anybody who wants to just Google national prisoner statistics. And um, he said, this is a situation we all find ourselves in. We sincerely hold strong moral beliefs on topics about which we are almost completely ignorant. Scott, we'd never be guilty of that. (laughs) 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 Not completely. I mean, well, this is the thing. We're trying to educate ourselves about these matters. I mean, we do have a a homespun education on a lot of this stuff. Anyway. Knowledge about difficult empirical questions has become so utterly irrelevant to whether we feel entitled to our opinions, often we don't even notice our own dramatic ignorance. Uh, He said that woman actually sort of refused to believe the statistic and she said that uh, reality is socially constructed. There's a bit of postmodernism for you. Uh, The writer here says, The world is such a big and messy place, most of us can be forgiven our ignorance. So that's fair enough. We don't, can't be expected to know everything about everything. But what cannot be forgiven is holding passionate opinions on issues of immense practical significance when we are almost completely ignorant of the facts. Uh, When we choose to address a topic that may seriously affect the lives of other people, we incur a corresponding serious obligation to discharge onerous epistemic duties i.e. if we're going to talk about something, then we should have some basic facts there to back up what we're going to say. And um, he goes on to say that, as you mentioned at the very beginning, there should be nothing wrong uh, with admitting that you actually don't know something about a topic. And our leaders and politicians on different topics should feel free to say at various times, well, look, I don't know anything about that, so I'm not going to comment. Hmm. I would have a hell of a lot more respect for our political leaders if they occasionally said that, mm. where they actually said, I don't know enough to comment, mm. so I'm not going to. Yeah. You know, I think that would be a hell of a lot better. Yep. Yeah. So, in praise of ignorance, that was a good article. We, dear listener, uh, well, we do do our best to get some facts and figures uh, when we're presenting stuff to you to sort of back up what we're saying. Right. Um, we do. We don't always get it right, but we are open to critiques if, if anyone has got a better opinion then they should let us know. Yes. Hmm. Um, also, we're not actually writing policy here. We're not actually writing legislation. We're sort of proposing ideas as well. So yeah, exactly. In our defence. Yeah. Hmm. Dear listener, just a word of warning. Um, the odd swear word or two coming up in this next section, so maybe you shouldn't have any little kiddies listening for the next five or ten minutes. Scott, I didn't tell you about this one, but there's been a study saying that um, um, swearing is not an acceptable form of social discourse in most public situations, but impolite people who use profane language have been found to be more honest and trustworthy in a new study. 
Profanity is associated with less lying and deception at the individual level and with higher integrity at the society level. Interestingly, while liars were more likely to use third-person pronouns or negative words, honest people were more likely to resort to profanity. Is that right? Mm. Also, swearing has been linked to higher verbal intelligence by previous research. So that's interesting. Okay. Yeah, it is, yeah. With that in mind, Scott, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, (laughs) I think, is a fucking zombie that refuses to die. (laughs) Uh, I think it is dead now because uh, Abe has... um Abe has come out and said that without the United States, there's no point proceeding with it, and that uh, Malcolm Turnbull should uh, uh, should uh, should shelve his uh, enthusiasm for it. So I think Abe has yeah I think Abe has Abe's killed it now. So what that means is he's, he's saying to Australia, you've got to go out there and sign up a whole heap of bilateral trading blocks. I'm anyway. saying to Abe, look carefully because. Like zombies, you think you've knocked them off and then they just lurch you out of the ground at you and start <laughs> biting you on the leg. Like, it just... You know, I thought, hip hip hooray, the TPP's dead, you know, ding dong, the witch is dead, ages ago. And this goddamn Liberal Party, Malcolm Turnbull and the rest of them, are trying to resurrect this awful agreement. I, I just can't believe it, Scott. I can't believe... It, it just goes to show the power I... of corporations who must be pulling pulling the strings on on Malcolm Turnbull and the others to keep pushing that barrow. I cannot believe it. Well, they were clearly. Uh, I think it was the corporations and that sort of stuff who were, you know, I'll swear now, uh, were pissed off the most that Donald Trump signed it out. Yes. He killed it off, and um, I think they were. I think it's fair to say they were behind the lobbying of the Liberal Party to mm. try and get it back on the agenda. Mm. But I, anyway, it's look on. It's, it's dead. It's dead. And the main problem with it was the investor state dispute clauses. Yes. If they hadn't have had those, I would have been a hell of a lot more comfortable with it. There were still some problems with it, but it was not. It was not the. It was still it was not a, the... a very, very marginal document in the sense of increased trade, mainly a bit to our cane farmers in terms of extra sugar that they could get in, but uh, not worth the headaches. So, oh, Scott, you'd have to say, from Australia's point of view, based on that with the TPP, so far... Uh, you know, weighing up the pros and cons of Donald Trump. At the moment, from our point of view, <laughs> it's currently in the positive. Yeah, I, I dare say you're probably right. Mm. It's, it is probably right, it, but um, it, it probably won't take long to go into the negative. But just at the moment, no, you'd have it to won't, say it won't. That for your average Australian, I think the Donald Trump victory so far has has been a plus. Incredibly. Well, the other thing that uh, could also work in your favour anyway is that the Americans were very much in favour of us buying our submarines from the Japanese, like you said. Were they? Yes. So the 
reason why we went to France and that sort of stuff is probably because they thought that, well, rather than us getting involved with the, you know, bitch fight between Japan and China and that sort of stuff, that we're better off dealing with a European partner. Uh, you think that was the reason? I think that was the reason. Mm. So, yeah, that was the reasoning that um, apparently the Americans were in favour of us buying our subs from the Japanese right. more so than the Europeans. Mm. So if you can there find could be... If you can find something that says that, I'd be very interested. Somebody's... Yeah, no worries. Yeah, theory on that. Because, so, you know, the whole argument from uh, Tony Abbott and them was that these large subs are going to be used in the South China Sea, presumably operating with the US in naval activity but uh so that kind of made me think that the u.s were in favor of it but on the other hand i have heard things that the u.s navy wouldn't want us anywhere near there because we just get in the road so yeah i'd be interested to know that i am interested to know why that came about that that decision um Hmm. uh scott i've got an article here called uh the abdication of the left by danny roderick and, that was quite uh, interesting, wasn't it? Yes, I like this overall sort of view of of what's happening in the world. And here's my summation of what he says: is that you know the world's got two crises, crises, plural crisis. Will be crises, I think. Crises. Yeah, yeah, crises. Two yeah. two big ones at the moment: the immigration crisis. Um, oh, besides terrorism. Uh, the immigration crisis and globalisation crisis and the sort of disappearing middle classes and disappearing jobs uh, around the world. And he's saying that uh, right-wing... Well, because left-wing parties are refusing to address the immigration crisis, uh, the right-wing parties are are succeeding um, and they're not particularly interested in dealing with globalisation so much but he said that in somewhere like Latin America where there is no immigration crisis um, then people aren't distracted and the left wing uh, people are turning to to address globalisation issues so Essentially, um, yeah, Latin America, no immigration crisis. Left wing uh, is being allowed to address globalisation. But the left wing in Western countries refusing to address immigration isn't getting a look in. And it's the right wing that is. And they're not too concerned with globalisation. And... He says that in much longer language, but that was sort of my guess of it, which I thought was a good theory. It was a very good theory, yeah, for sure. It, oh. It's, um, you know, it was very interesting. You know, uh, um, you know, he um, he goes and talks about France's socialist technocrats appear to have concluded that the failed Mitterrand experiment with Keynesianism in the early nineteen eighties. That domestic economic management was no longer possible, and the only no real alternative to financial globalization. Mm. Now that is what Europe is currently suffering under now, because they've gone and they have uh, integrated their monetary systems and that sort of stuff to the point that um, they've really got to go one step forward or one step back. They've either got to go into now fiscal union, 
or they're going to have to withdraw from monetary union, mm. I think, mm. because it's um, you can't have you can't continue to on the on the same road that Europe's been on. Mm. You've either got to go forward again, or you've got to go backwards. Mm. Anyway, mm. we shall see where it goes. Mm. Mm. I was listening to an interview with Yanis um, Furifakis. He was the mm. previous finance minister in Greece and they had the referendum which said that they weren't going to um, submit themselves to all of the um, directives from Brussels and then his president basically capitulated so he ended up having to resign and um, you know uh, in the high point of the crisis you know he would have wanted I think to have gone back to the drachma but the problem was physical notes and actually getting them printed it was difficult, well, impossible to do without it sort of getting leaked out that, that that's what they were up to. And I reckon they'd yeah, be... Yeah, which is very interesting because Portugal has apparently stored all their old currency. Have they? I didn't know that. Yes. They've got the Squido on ice ah. and they can bring it out very quickly. Because I was thinking... they need... Our mint... I don't know what they're doing over there at the moment. <laughs> but what we should do is just generate some sort of generic currency. <laughs> Call it the peso or something. And just have you know it in a warehouse sitting ready for any country in Europe that's ready to pull out of the euro. We have a customer there willing to pay top dollar for some, for some new currency. I think yeah, our mint. Exactly, yeah. I think our mint should be looking at that idea, Scott. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. That's probably one of my more harebrained theories. Money making schemes, of, yeah. Of late, yeah. and uh, Scott, we've had a few theories. I love a good theory, as you know. Yes, you have been through your theories before. Yes, <laughs> and just as a recap for the dear listener, because. Um, uh, well, dear listener, here's a, here's a test. You know, if you've been listening to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove for for 80... What are we up to? 79, 80 episodes. 79 episodes, yeah. yeah. How many of these theories do you reckon you could, uh, you could, you could explain at a dinner party if necessary? Uh, just going back to through our history of theories, Scott. The Bob Ellis, the most boring man in the room theory. Remember that one? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, bike no, I don't actually. Don't remember don't, that one. No, so anyway, okay. that yeah. was that was yeah. in any meeting that uh, the most powerful man in the room is the most boring one because he just talks and gotcha. talks and yeah. talks and he can't help himself and people will agree to anything that he wants just to stop mm. and get out of the meeting yeah. and get out of the room. Mm. Uh, bike shedding. I remember bike shedding. Yes, bike shedding. Yeah. Uh, duck theory. Duck theory. No. Duck theory. Can't remember that one. Duck theory was the uh, if you've got a boss who always has to pick on something that you do in a proposal, then you, uh, then you, right. then you, you just, create yeah. a false item that you don't really care about. And uh, yeah. so that was the animator who did an animation of a princess, and um, whenever the princess appeared, there'd be a duck flapping around, uh, mm. easily edited out of the cartoon. And then they presented it to the boss. The boss said, "Fantastic work, love it." Uh, just get rid of the duck, and that was yeah. That was duck theory. Um, movie theory of of the three books of the um, 
of of religion. This was the one, Scott, which was uh, think of it like a moving. Yeah. The, the Torah is the first one, and the New Testament is the sequel. Then the Quran comes out, and it retcons like the last one never happened. There's still Jesus, but he's not the main character anymore, and the Messiah hasn't shown up yet. <laughs> Jews like the first movie but ignore the sequels. Christians think you need to watch the first two, but the third movie doesn't count. Muslims think that the third one was the best. And Mormons liked the second one so much that they started writing fan fiction that doesn't fit with any of the same canon. Uh, And then we had Gad Sad uh, with his um, sneaky fucker theory and uh, and the social justice warriors... Munchausen syndrome. So there's there's the theory. Yes. So add to that, dear listener. Add to that, dear listener. Um, the Batman effect. <laughs> did I send you this one? You did send it to me, and I didn't get. I didn't find it until I actually got to the final two, three lines of the of the article. All right, don't spoil it. We have got to build so, up to it. No, we have got to build up to it. But you know, it is uh, it is very interesting. It, it's. Um, at one point, I was sitting there thinking, "What the is he on?" <laughs> but then you got down to the final three lines. Then it made sense. It, yes. it all made so, sense. Yeah. So um, go for it. <laughs> so he's talking about Donald Trump, and Donald Trump, of course. Well, Michael Moore picked the Donald Trump victory because he saw Donald Trump um, addressing auto workers and saying that if he was president, he would tell the car manufacturing bosses, that if they shift their factory to Mexico, he'll whack a huge tariff on their cars, they'll never sell another car in the United States ever again. Crowd roars, Mm. and Michael Moore at that point said, this guy is going to win. So Donald Trump, you know, he's going to, over the course of the short term or his presidency, according to this uh, writer, he's going to whack people over the head every so often with stuff like that, and... That's what people will hear about and they'll think, oh, Donald's being successful because this company is now, you know, not going to move overseas and that company's not going to move overseas. But, you know, you can't scale us up. So for every one that he he keeps in America, there'll be another 999 that disappear, you know, overseas and we don't even know about it. So, um, so, uh, you know, it, it won't actually work effectively in the long term. But uh, but what he does here is he um, he then goes on to say at the end, there is an old joke about Batman. Suppose you're a hyper-competent billionaire in a decaying city and you want to do something about the crime problem. What's your best option? Maybe you could donate money to law enforcement or after-school programs for at-risk teens or urban renewal. Or you could urge your company full of engineering geniuses to invent new police tactics and better security systems. Or you could use your influence as a beloved celebrity to petition the government to pass laws which improve efficiency of the justice system. Bruce Wayne decided to dress up in a bat costume and personally punch criminals. And we love him for it. (laughs) And the moral of this guy's story is he calling that Trump and the Batman effect. Uh, Going out and whacking a few criminals every so often. And look, it makes sense, mm. and you can see you can see it when he, uh, you know, when you when you uh, I, I, he didn't mention the um, the story about Michael Moore, but when you put that in, in when you put that in there with it, mm. it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Mm. 
Um, oh, we go to and from. It's, it's hard to avoid Donald Trump, and we sort of we go back and forward yeah. to him because uh, all these sorts of things come up. But um, uh, Hawking, what's his name? Um, Stephen, Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking uh, apparently made a statement uh, to a television interviewer calling Donald Trump, quote, a demagogue who seems to appeal to the lowest common denominator, end quote. And uh, what happened then was Google reported a sharp increase in searches for the terms demagogue, denominator, and Stephen Hawking. (laughs) (laughs) And um, Trump said, you know, speak English, and his spokesman people said, you know, what's he talking about? Nobody understands that. (laughs) And bagged him and saying, oh, well, if if you're trying to criticise Donald, you know, You've, it's an epic fail. Uh, if he wants to do some damage, mate, uh, actually, here we go. This is Corey Lewandowski, Trump's campaign manager, said, For a so-called genius, this was an epic fail. If Professor Hawking wants to do some damage, maybe he should try talking in English next time. And so um, later in the day, Hawking clarified his remark, telling a reporter, quote, Trump, bad man. <laughs> Full stop. Real bad real, man. Real bad man. <laughs> End quote. Uh, still got a sense of humour, Stephen Hawking. Well, he, he's, he's certainly got a sense of humour, but, you know, the, the Yanks don't have one, so that will be interesting to see whether or not there's been any further blowback on that. But anyway. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Dear listener, just for your... Because we do do a bit of vocabulary work on this podcast. Um, demagogue. A political leader who seeks support by appealing to popular desires and prejudices rather than by using rational argument. I reckon that's probably a fair enough description of Donald Trump. I think that's a fair enough description of Donald Trump, yeah. And uh, lowest common denominator in common usage seems uh, to be um, pandering to the least discriminating audience or consumer group, which is really quite different to what lowest common denominator as a mathematical term means. It kind of doesn't really fit the mathematical notions very well but that's what it means in you know it's come to mean in general parlance but um Mm. um so there we go hawking on donald trump um guy rundle wrote an article about the liberal party's inevitable decay and yeah you agree with him scott um Yes and no. I mean, you know, what he points out is accurate. It is happening. You know, that it's no longer the party that it was designed to be and that sort of stuff. Um, It has fallen under the influence of business and that type of thing, more so than its membership. Uh And, yeah, so I can understand where he's coming from. Uh I just don't know that it's going to fracture and splinter the way he predicts. You know, he talks about... um, you know, he talks about it splintering and that sort of stuff, and um, you end up having Labor on one side, which is held together by its union ties, mm-hmm. and then you've got the other side, which would be splintered. I, I don't know that they would get that. I, I don't know that you would have enough... I don't think there'd be enough out there... There'd be enough people out there who would be prepared to vote for a hard-right alternative mm. that it would splinter... 
it would splinter the Liberal Party that much. Yeah, anyway, I don't yeah. know. I mean, guys like Cory Bernardi or George Christensen, if they decide to splinter off... Would Which think... would be the best thing for Turnbull. If yes. they decided to splinter off, what he should do, and yeah. Malcolm, this is a little bit of advice from the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove, well, mm. maybe for just from the Velvet Glove, oh, yeah. but Malcolm, if they decide to splinter, you should call a snap pole <laughs> what? and deal with them. <laughs> yes, he should call a snap pole and deal with them. <laughs> well, what he should do is just keep going and just... See how they vote. I mean, they'll still vote for most of the stuff he wants. I would have thought. Yeah, they will vote for the they, they will they will vote for the way he wants. But it would be better if he had a clean run at them, and dispensed with them once and for all, and then had a larger uh, caucus of moderate centre right liberals that he could then turn around and say right. Let's do something on gay marriage. <laughs> you know, let's do something on this and that sort of stuff. I, I, it would be yeah. easier. Yeah. I, I disagree with you there, Volvo Glove. I, if I was him, <laughs> I would say, sure, leave us. You'll be disendorsed at the next election and I'll be watching your voting record over the next year or two and you're going to vote Conservative anyway, um, except on some key issues, which you were never going to vote for me anyway. So, And you'll disappear after the next election. So, mm. yeah, I, that's what I reckon he would do. But uh, uh, Look, I, I think he'd be better off... I, I, you know, I mean, I think he'd be better off having a, um, having a snap poll and, and dealing with them once and for all. Right. But I can mm. understand where you're coming from. Yeah. So anyway, this um, guy, Rundle, is saying that... Um, you know, we talk about the political parties um, being hollowed out... He said, in relation to Labor, the candidates may be machine people, but they are still, by and large, competent, in his view. Um, He's saying that the Liberal Party has moved so far away from its traditional philosophy of, you know, the 50s and 60s, that it's now just in this individualism, neoliberalism, stop government growing and reduce government at, at whenever possible, that why would anybody want to be a Liberal politician in that situation? So um, you're saying that... Yeah, that was a good point that he made there. You, you, do, you do wonder why you would want to go into it, you know. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, if you were a business person with some sort of notions of getting some socially liberal things done, you would just go into business, make money and and provide funds through charitable, philanthropic sort of work rather than being a politician was his sort of angle on it. So because they're not really standing for anything other than just getting rid of government and smart people would be quite bored by that. So I think you might have something to say there. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I agreed with him that what was happening was... What, what he was pointing out was accurate and that sort of stuff, but I just didn't think it would splinter the way it would suggest mm. it would. Anyway. Mm. So there's another yeah. article. Catherine Murphy, I think, is um, talking about the splintering again of Bernardi and Christensen and saying what a good thing that would be and saying it's not out of the question that Corey Bernardi's been talking to a group called Rebel and, uh, yeah, I didn't know that, and that was very interesting when you read that. Which is Canada's version of Breitbart News, and 
So if you're going to form a political outfit, you need a news outlet that's a political party you need a news outlet that's going to be favorable to you so if this rebel group which is a Breitbart type group starts up then that would be perfect for Bernardi and his like so um so anyway that was on a splinter movement for that yeah i'd go back to saying that it'd be best thing for the liberal party if they did splinter off because mm. they wouldn't win mm. you know they'd be dealt with then once and for all mm. We got a, uh, a message from a Matt in WA. Thank you, Matt, because it's nice to get some feedback. And he drew attention to Liberal Party in WA being infested by, uh, in his words, Christian extremists, uh, and that the party there <laughs> is in good need of delousing. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, with with colourful language like that, you're clearly an Iron Fist Velvet Glove. <laughs> Podcast listener. Thank you, Matt. Yeah, that, mm. that, uh, that, that warms the cockles of a heart. Of a, of a heart yeah. And you also mentioned a thing where, um, he says here, and something that really rankles, a few years ago the state government put out to tender the building and running of a new public hospital in Perth's eastern suburbs. The massive contract was handed to the SGOG, sorry, SJOG Catholic Hospital Group, who have refused to provide any reproductive health services, e.g. vasectomies, abortions. And he says, how this issue didn't infuriate the population and lead to mass protests should surprise me. Um, Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, keep doing what you're doing to raise awareness of the intrusiveness of religion into our lives. Thank you, Matt. And on the topic of hospitals, um, we do have a member who's knowledgeable about these issues and that will be a topic to come up because it is one that sort of hasn't been spoken about much but our hospital system dominated by religious groups and and i don't understand at this stage what they do and don't do for things like vasectomies and abortions and stuff so in the spirit of gaining facts before we give an opinion we'll be um investigating that one so that's on the agenda absolutely Mm. It, it is something we do have to get our heads around because the Catholics are heavily involved in it. Mm. And they, yeah, I mean, they could well just have a blanket ban on it. Who knows? Mm. Um, Scott, you watch the tennis? Um, no, I don't actually, but I have been interested to see who's winning. Yeah, I love yeah. the tennis. And as you know, I cannot yeah. stand Nick Kyrgios. And <laughs> like many Australians... I'm in the position where I watch his matches hoping for him to fail and he did eventually self-explode and his um, his racket racket manufacturer sponsor, they've now brought out a rule where their sponsored players will be fined in their contract if they break rackets on the court intentionally. So I thought that was a good idea. So... That's what it's He broke to. a racket, did he? Oh, yeah, all the time. So he yeah. gets petulant uh, and gets upset because things aren't quite going his way when it was as easy as, he, as they should. Then um, mm. uh, he breaks his racket and has a hissy fit and, uh, and tanks the matches, it seems, from the sidelines is what he's doing. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so that's it Nick Curios. It wouldn't surprise me because there was a um, question about whether or not he'd actually deliberately thrown a couple of matches recently, wasn't there? Yeah, well, you know, people bet on tennis matches and he clearly doesn't try at some points. So, Mm. 
um, leaves the whole question open. Terrible blight on the game, Nick Kyrgios. Um, actually, there's an explanation for his behaviour that a friend gave uh, that uh, he's so talented and things have come to him so easily that he's probably never had to be persistent and resilient and overcome difficulties. It's just fallen into his lap. So mm. when he strikes resistance in a tough match against a better opponent, he just has no experience of dealing with it. So he's got zero resilience um, due to such an easy run uh, due to his talent. So that was a good yeah. theory. There's the Nick Kyrgios theory to add to the um, kit bag of <laughs> of theories. Um, oh, Lionel Shriver article, kind of saying what you said before, um, just bagging identity politics. Identity politics is a very restrictive way of thinking about oneself and other people, and I'm dismayed by the whole movement, she says. It's encouraging us to think of each other in terms of stereotypes and little boxes. It's also encouraging people to cling to disadvantage as a weapon. It means you're going to cling to your disadvantage. That's not helpful. It means that you're attached to it and you don't want it to go away. So there's a link to that article. You can read the whole thing. Dear listener, not too long ago, you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast was available to download. Did you silently think to yourself, wait, a new podcast? I like listening to those guys. If so, then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast. Your donation will help cover some expenses, but more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and click on the donations link. Uh, Scott, I'm a bit conscious of the time. So a few of the quicker ones to rattle through. The Muslim girl refuses to shake the hand of the German president. That's a good one. Yeah, it was a very interesting one because you, I didn't realise that this, this whole thing was um, blamed... Well, I did hear about it from time to time, like in Switzerland and that sort of stuff, where you had uh, male students refusing to shake the hands of female teachers. Mm. And they said that they said it's religion and that sort of stuff. And I just put that to one side. And then, then it came up here and I thought to myself, this is nonsense. You know, this, this is ridiculous. The German president went there to a school that had, had made remarkable uh, strides forward in integrating migrants and that sort of stuff into Germany. Mm. And... This one girl refused to shake his hand because yeah. she couldn't touch. She couldn't touch the uh, hand of a, uh, of a of a member of the opposite sex who wasn't from her family. Mm. Yeah. Whole line of students. He shook the hand of all these students. Came to the girl with the hijab, and yeah. she refused to shake his and hand. She refused. And yeah. this this was a school chosen, singled out for how successfully they helped migrant children learn the language and culture. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Scott, in France, um, well, organ donations. It's been a funny situation in Queensland, at least, where we had it on our driver's licence that if you want to opt in as an organ donor, you could. I don't know that mm. it's still there. I think it changed. but um, th- I couldn't tell you. I haven't got my wallet with me. Yeah. yeah um, so in France, what they've decided 
is that everyone in France is now automatically an organ donor unless you put yourself on a register to say you're not. Mm. I think that's a good good idea. Well, I think that's a good idea too because it's it's the one thing that you can leave that each of us could leave behind when our time comes. Mm. You know, it, it's it, it's. And look, it is so rare that you're going to be harvested for your organs anyway because mm. you have to die under the right circumstances. You have to be in hospital when you die mm. and all that sort of stuff. Mm. So it's highly unlikely that if you get cleaned up in a car accident that you're going to be able to harvest your organs and donate them. Mm. However, if you do die in that circumstance where your organs can be harvested, please, please harvest your organs and leave them behind. Because you know, it's there was nothing. There was nothing any surer than that uh, bumper sticker that was out there for a few years. It said, um, "Don't take your organs to heaven. Heaven knows we need them here." So, very you know, good bump. Yes, very good. Yeah, I saw yeah. in the comments of this article an idea that I yes. ne- that I'd never heard before, which I thought was fantastic. Yeah, uh, a Nicola Oalert said, <clears throat> "Could those who opt out?" Uh, also be registered as not authorised to receive an organ in their time of need. I reckon this is a great idea. That Absolutely. If you it opt really out is. of the organ registry, then as you know, 20 people all in a, in a room all needing a lung transplant and all, you know, let's say theoretically a match for a donor, then the person who's opted out would be at the end of the line. So, Scott, had you ever heard that theory before? That um, if you opt, you know, kind of like maybe... Yeah, I've never heard it before, but it it makes perfect sense, though. It really does, because, you know, what would force people to do is actually sit there and think about it. Mm. And you've got that situation that um, the guy in New South Wales, he was one of two or three people that voted against heart transplants, but he was was one that ended up needing it. You know, and that was absolutely ridiculous. So I, I, I find... If you compel people to think about themselves mm. and then they, if they then say if they opt out that they're just closing the door to organ transplants themselves, that will, that will force their hand to really think about it. Mm. Yeah. yeah, a little bit of self-interest. So even here in Australia where we don't have an automatic system, say we stuck with the current system, then I reckon if you, for example are listed as an organ donor, then you should take priority over somebody who's not listed as an organ donor if, in fact, you both need to receive an organ. So Yeah, exactly. That would be the other way of doing it. If we didn't have an an automatic you're-in system, if you had to opt in, we'll at least reward those people by saying, great, you're on the register as a potential donor, then you would get priority over a non-donor if, in the event, you need an organ. I think that'd be good. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, So that was that. Um, Japanese group launches an 18C racial discrimination case over Comfort Women Memorial. I found this ridiculous. And I've got to admit, when I was on holidays, I went back through some of the old stuff and I listened to the... uh, conversation you had with right-wing Tony about 18C. Yes. 
and he's dead right. If they, ha- if you had an exemption, if you if you had an exemption there that said if you're telling the truth, yes, then this nonsense would never have happened. Mm. You know? yeah. It's ridiculous. So, uh, dear listener, what we've got is um, a proposal to put up a memorial to sex slaves of the Japanese Imperial Army in World War Two, and this was going to happen. somewhere near the Ashfield Uniting Church in Sydney's Inner West. And um, it was going to be erected by Sydney's Korean community because, of course, a lot of Koreans were enslaved as sex slaves by the Japanese in the Second World War uh, as comfort women. Uh, In fact, an estimated 200,000 women were forced to work as sex slaves. Terrible thing. Anyway... The Australian-Japan Community Network is lodging a case under Section 18C claiming that such a memorial would be racial discrimination and therefore a violation of Section 18C. It's not racial discrimination at all. It's just it, it's well, 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 you know, they're probably it's, they're probably, it's they, they it's would match ADNC. A... You've simply got to you've simply got to show offend, insult, humiliate, or intimidate a person on the base of race, colour, nationality, or ethnic origin. So you could claim that such a memorial is humiliating to Japanese. There you go. You've just you've just done all you need to do under 18C and you then have to try and get it through under 18D or something. So the the ridiculous thing about this whole thing is that it's it's not it's not taking into account what this is. It's just a memorial that's being set up by a group of people whose ancestors and that sort of stuff were forced to be sex slaves. Mm. I, I, and then you've got I think it'd be one of those things where 18D saves it, but the whole point is the framing of this legislation where agency is so broad and then you need a super broad 18D to also work with it is just so messy. So it's... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's interesting, Scott. The Japanese and the Germans, to be compared in their, uh, their recognition of misdeeds during World War Two, the Germans are so far ahead of the Japanese, like they have accepted their role and are genuinely remorseful, and German students learn about what Germany did during the war. Japan, completely different. Like, Japanese yeah, students... Japan completely ignore it, yeah. They would have no idea of, the, of their history in the Second World War. None at all, the average Japanese student today. It's, it's swept under the carpet, not referred to, so... Big difference in the um, in the way that those two countries have have approached that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Scott, have you ever attempted to go back to university? Uh, no, not really. But you know, there's some interesting <laughs> courses out there. Uh, yeah, this one here is from the University of Victoria. This one, British Columbia in Canada. Uh, the course WS three 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 A, titled querying the undead you listen to this is the sort of course that's available at universities in western countries at the moment uh, it introduces the concept of queer 
by exposing the similarities between Hollywood monsters and marginalised genders, sexes and sexualities. Focuses on the term queer as both activist and theoretical, and the production of such undead characters as zombies, werewolves, ghosts and cyborgs as both constructive and problematic to queer concerns. There's very little you can say about this, but um, there was a comment on there, Mika, I remember a time when universities were institutions of learning, inquiry and debate. Mika, you've hit the nail right on the head. (laughs) Well, Scott, we've got a bunch of others and in my, you know... My, part of my computer is just overflowing with articles accumulated over the last four weeks. We've got enough material to keep us going through till next well, Christmas. Well, that's good to know. Even yeah, if Donald exactly. Trump doesn't do anything in the meantime, which I'm <laughs> sure he will. So, um, so dear listener, yeah. that's it for the first episode of the new year. We shall be back next Happy week. Happy New Year to you too, Trevor. Yes, and you as well, Scott. And um, Thank you. So, goodbye from us. We will talk to you next week. Goodbye. See you then. Bye now. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and, uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you... Go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode and really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth... More than that, less than that, whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.